Our scripture reading this morning comes from John chapter 9, the full chapter, verses 1 through 41. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent us. The night is coming, and then no one will work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. Then he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. He told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. His neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was, and others said, No, it just looks like him. But the beggar kept saying, Yes, I am the one. They asked, Who healed you? What happened? He told them, The man they called Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and washed, and now I can see. Where is he now, they asked. I don't know, he replied. Then they took the man who had been blind to the Pharisees, because it was on the Sabbath that Jesus had made the mud and healed him. The Pharisees asked the man all about it, so he told them, He put the mud over my eyes, and when I washed it away, I could see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man Jesus is not from God, for he is working on the Sabbath. Others said, But how could an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs? So there was a deep division of opinion among them. Then the Pharisees again questioned the man who had been blind and demanded, What's your opinion about the man who healed you? The man replied, I think he must be a prophet. The Jewish leaders still refused to believe the man had been blind and could now see, so they called in his parents. They asked them, Is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, how can he now see? His parents replied, We know this is our son and that he was born blind, but we don't know how he can see or who healed him. Ask him. He is old enough to speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, who had announced that anyone saying Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. That's why they said, He's old enough. Ask him. So for the second time, they called in the man who had been blind and told him, God should get the glory for this, because we know this man Jesus is a sinner. I don't know whether he is a sinner, the man replied, but I know this. I was blind, and now I see. But what did he do, they asked. How did he heal you? Look, the man exclaimed, I told you once, didn't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? Then they cursed him and said, You are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, but we don't even know where this man comes from. Why, that's very strange, the man replied. He healed my eyes, and yet you don't know where he comes from? We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he is ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. Ever since the world began, no one has been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. If this man were not from God, he couldn't have done it. You were born a total sinner, they answered. Are you trying to teach us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. 
When Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man and asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, Who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. You have seen him, Jesus said, and he is speaking to you. Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said, and he worshipped Jesus. Then Jesus told him, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show those who think they see that they are really blind. Some Pharisees who were standing nearby heard him and asked, Are you saying we're blind? If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, Jesus replied, but you remain guilty because you claim you can see. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks to all who've been praying for our time together today. Uh, the older I get, the more sobering it feels to be in this place of preaching the word. There is no end to my admiration for Andrew and others who undertake this task. Today we'll explore the story given to us in John 9, and as we do, as I have in the past, I invite us not so much to examine the text, but rather to allow the text to examine us. Hopefully we will see in this story another example of how God brings forward into our stories the future life, the new life, the new heaven and earth in which he envisions for us to dwell. I'll say at the outset that for me, the events of John 9 contain some of the most riveting, transforming, beautiful, tender, and disturbing and disruptive elements of anything that encounters me in the scriptures. One way that we know we're reading good literature is its ability to, in small chunks, reveal so much about us without our being able to defend against it. This is why stories are so helpful and good for us to immerse ourselves in, not least the stories of scripture. God is far more able to get to us via the routes and manner in which he has made our brains to work than by simply shoehorning facts into my mind that is already made up about the reality of the world. Not unlike some of the folks we will soon meet. Our drama opens with Jesus encountering a man blind from birth. The way John so casually puts it, as he walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. This primes me to imagine that so much of life that I could potentially, that could potentially explode with the fireworkings of God are happening as I am simply walking along. How often do I look right past those things that God wants me to do? Who knows? I don't see them because I'm not looking for them. But this story is already inviting me to open my eyes and wake up to those events. John subtly sets up his readers by alerting us to how Jesus saw the blind man. And what he saw was so much more than blindness. To be certain, let me say at the outset that Jesus sees you. The disciples, predictably, not unlike me, are also men of great vision. 
Naturally looking for a way to bring help and healing to their world and to the blind man, they turned to one of the most effective tools in their box, condemnation. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, such that he was born blind? You'd think that given the opportunity before them, they would have whipped out their phones, snapping pictures on, to post on Instagram and Facebook, overwhelmed as they were with such a great marketing opportunity. Oh my gosh, Jesus, this is great. Heal this guy. Hey, come to think of it, spit on the ground. Make some mud while you're at it. We'll get hundreds of likes. But no. They were more naturally inclined to act as they, their community, and I would, the way we've been practicing for generations. To be born blind in their culture meant that someone's sin was the cause. We have our own versions of this. Homelessness, substance abuse, or even now, oddly enough, holding particular social or political positions. And avoiding the darkness was a primary concern, something quite different than looking toward the light. It was not as if the disciples were consciously trying to be contemptuous of the sightless man. They were just talking like they always did. They were running down the same rabbit hole of shame that most of us frequently enter, quite automatically, quite non-consciously, dozens of times every day. Jesus responds as though he was from another dimension of reality, which he sort of is. He states flatly that not only is this not about shame and not about the sin associated with it, but rather about its very opposite. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. This is about God creating something new and beautiful in the very place and out of the very stuff that we would least expect it to happen. And that is something that is usually, quite literally, beyond my imagination. I have every confidence that had I been there, I would have been completely confused by Jesus' words. Especially if I'm the blind guy. If I'm the blind guy, all I know is the paralyzing shame of my condition. I would have no context in which to make sense of Jesus' words. There is no world in which the newspaper headline with the words, works of God, revealed in blind man without a name, show up in the same sentence. No world. But think about it. Can you recall the last time you did something or felt something, large or small, in which you knew the creeping or overwhelming awareness of shame? Who among us would imagine in that very moment sensing the hand of a 30-something-year-old Jewish man gently touching your shoulder? In the middle of my worst behavior, my deepest shame, and turning, hearing him say, I can't wait to see what we're going to do with the next five minutes. It would likely be disorienting, and although comforting, a bit disruptive, given how unlike it is from the normal course of human behavior. Jesus continues, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. 
Here Jesus is getting to the heart of the matter and appealing to the Genesis account of creation at the same time that we read earlier today. John is drawing the reader's attention to what we heard earlier from Genesis 1, that we serve a God who does his best creative work in the midst of chaos, in the midst of our worst nightmares. Out of chaos, he brings light and separates it from darkness. He wades into our hard marriages, our painful histories of abuse, our angry political setting, our racism, our challenging parenting, our challenging parents, our travail in our work settings, or lack thereof. Jesus is telling his disciples that the crucifixion is coming, night, when he can no longer work. But as long as he is in the world, he is the light, not an idea, not a philosophy, not a political ideology, not a particular theological or social position, but rather Jesus, the person. This is often not easy for me. I want to be the light. Me, with my ideas, my notions of what is right and wrong. But this is only true because my imagination is still literally quite in the dark. I don't see Jesus. I only think of what I'm thinking and feeling. And so we have to ask, where is it true for us that our imaginations are still in the dark? Jesus moves on. Without explaining what he is doing beforehand and without asking permission, how dare he apply medical treatment without first obtaining a signed consent form? The nerve of him. He spits on the ground, makes mud, and pastes it on the man's eyes. Okay, think about this. How much saliva does it take to make that much mud? It's a lot. But notice, this act is not just about healing. It is about intimacy. Jesus could have healed him from a distance, as he does in Luke 18 when he responds to that blind beggar saying, receive your sight. But our reading from Genesis 2 reminds us of how God formed the man from the dust and the mud of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Holy CPR, as it were. God longs for intimacy with us. And his healing and regeneration is never ultimately done or kept from a distance. It is always done up close and personal. Because ultimately, he does not just want us to be well, he wants us to be with him. I think we need to ask ourselves, who are the people that we are permitting, even welcoming, so closely into our personal space that we can feel each other's emotional breath, feel the touch of their hands as they apply mud to our eyes? But Genesis 2 a story of beginnings, tells us something else. It turns out that the light, which Jesus is, is as disruptive as it is healing. For those who are open to Jesus' call, he heals us, but not without going back to the beginning. He does not offer us a simple course correction from where we are, which is what I'd really rather he do. Rather, he insists that we begin at the beginning. In Jesus, God is beginning a completely new thing, and there is nothing we have done or can do to initiate or control this. 
a reality that can be as maddening as it is liberating. Jesus could have told Nicodemus in John 3 that you must turn over a new leaf or make a right-angle turn. That's all you need to do. But he essentially said, you have to start over from the beginning, back when I knew you, but before you were formed, echoing the prophet Jeremiah. For it requires our willingness for Jesus to overturn, overturn every stone of shame, exposing every neural network of memory that represents not only my wounds, but also my fierce independence that I use to protect them from Jesus coming to heal me, along with my insistent penchant to break every command that God utters as a way for me to cope. By the way, I'm just glad that there are only 10 commandments. If there were 20, I'd be breaking them as well. It's not a good track record for me. In the wake of my brother's death last June, I've learned more about my life at levels of depth than I was aware were present. And I'm not completely happy about it, frankly. For with those discoveries, Jesus has been ferreting out parts of me that for all of my life I've been hiding and exposing ways that I've coped unhealthily with the dysfunction of my family of origin. Apparently, Jesus has no intention of leaving me there, but has been going back to my beginnings, perhaps as he was to those of our blind friend. It is at this moment in our story that the disruptive nature of healing begins. First, Jesus tells the blind man to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Siloam meaning scent, an important feature to which we'll return. If I'm the blind man, I, I'm just minding my own business. The next thing I know, slap, slap, there's mud on my face. And then some dude I don't know is telling me to go wash in the pool. Now, given that I've been blind all my life, perhaps I may know my way. But really, I can't even see. And on top of that, now I have to go with mud on my face. As if being blind was not shaming enough. And you won't be going with me? How many times does Jesus' healing and recommissioning require me to be open with others about the reality of my life? To go, essentially blind and with mud on my face and wash in the confessional pool of the body of Jesus. I know from experience that it is only in the relationships I have with those who know everything there is to know about me that God has access to my entire story such that he is able to do with me what he was doing with this blind man. And then all hell breaks loose. First, it's the neighbors. Like the disciples, instead of throwing a party, they are at best confused. This is what healing often does to a community that has been so committed to the coping strategies it has formed over years and generations to protect itself from its own shame. Who knows how long this man has been sitting blind and unseen the embodiment of the community's shame about so many things, not least being their merciless, faithless treatment of him. No doubt, should Jesus show up here in my time and space 
and start regenerating people I've been conveniently ignoring all my life, I too might be easily embarrassed and would be looking for excuses. One of the most effective ways would be for me to deny that there had ever been a problem in the first place, not unlike how the man's neighbors, who have known him his entire life, suddenly don't seem to be able to recognize him as having been a blind man after all. When the blind man does not answer their questions sufficiently, they take him to a group of lawyers. And we all know how this is likely going to go from here. But the lawyers start asking different questions. Questions about Jesus. The man simply responds by telling the truth. I was blind. There was a guy. There was mud. I washed. Now I see. Get the picture? What is so hard to understand? It's not enough. Before long, the lawyers bring in the man's parents, who in their own fear of excommunication from the community, promptly throw their son under the bus. Then it's back to the man himself, who by this time has grown impatient, but has developed a keen sense of sarcastic humor and has acquired a rapier-sharp theological mind. He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Here is an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. At which point, the lawyers have had enough. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins, and you are trying to teach us? And they drove him out. And in so doing, answered the disciples' first question. They put him out, not just of their gathering, not just of the building, not just of the church, but of the entire community. Now, if I'm the man who used to be blind but now can see, I'm not sure this whole healing thing is working out so well for me. Before, at least I knew who I was. Even if shame was my middle name, or my only name. At least I had a community in which I knew my place. And now, now I can see, but I don't have much else. Not a job, not my neighbors, not my family, not the elders, not the pastor. I got nothing. But then, Jesus comes to find him. And Jesus engages him in the conversation that completes his healing. Over time, the man's relationship with Jesus grows from the man they call Jesus to he is a prophet to Lord, I believe in you, the Son of Man. For as it turns out, what the man and those around him perceive to be his most shameful, debilitating defect as I often do for myself and others, Jesus saw as the very condition in which the beauty of God was waiting to emerge. 
And the greatest splendor of that beauty is the intimacy that the man and Jesus share together at the end of the story. But the Pharisees were having none of this seeing thing, at least not as Jesus saw things. They protest to him that surely they are not blind. In my work as a psychiatrist, we say that there are two kinds of people, those who are sick and know it, and those who are sick and don't. And none of us is nearly as well as we seem. The Pharisees' commitment to keeping their eyes shut in the presence of the light only kept them in the dark, much like how I often behave. Perhaps the light was just too bright, so much so that it hurt their eyes to look at. They remind me of the dwarves in the conclusion of the last battle, the final book of C.S. Lewis's Narnia series. As the new Narnia was dawning, the dwarves, who had been co-opted by so many, were not going to be fooled by this new Narnia. They sat around in a circle with their eyes closed and their fingers in their ears, repeating to each other that no one, no one, was really for them. Only they were for them. They were on their own, and they couldn't trust anyone, not even if they brought them into this spectacular new Narnia of goodness and beauty. Who knows? Maybe the Pharisees had placed their hopes in far too many false messiahs before only to have their hopes dashed. Maybe they, like me, feared that you can't really trust God with your shame, your brokenness, your difficult life. For to do so would only mean that eventually, once again, you would be disappointed, you would be disillusioned, you would be left in despair. For them to have received the light would have required the Pharisees to allow themselves to believe, to hope in what Jesus was certainly offering, healing and recommissioning, but would have been an act of great vulnerability. And their vulnerability is what they, like me, had spent years developing layers of coping strategies to protect. Protecting against being known intimately as God knew the first man in Genesis 2 and as Jesus knew our blind friend in this story. Protecting me from seeing and feeling my own shame, my own fear, my fear of being seen and being abandoned once God and you see me thoroughly for who I am. And I have this seemingly infinite array of defenses to protect my vulnerable self against a relentless, pursuing, Trinitarian God. My wealth, my education, my materialism, my consumptionism. I don't know if that's a word, but I know it's a thing. My occupation and its status. My physical health, although not in the last week. My theology, my certainty that I know the truth about the most controversial things in our society my church here at WCF, and my knowledge of my place in it, my being a middle-aged white guy. The list goes on and on. Maybe you're like me in that way. But our blind friend, he had no such accessories. His vulnerability, like that of the first man 
after being formed out of mud, was visible in plain sight. And it was his vulnerability, his nakedness, like that of the first couple in Genesis 2, that became the very thing that Jesus engaged to form a new life. Precisely because Jesus, as was the case for Adam and Eve at the close of Genesis 2, disallowed shame to play any role in the work he was doing. I so want to see even as did the blind man. Unfortunately, I far too easily and frequently am more apt to behave like the man's neighbors, his family, and the Pharisees. But this story is one of good news. News I have for all of us. Jesus is always, always coming to find you. Coming to find me. Coming to find us. And he does so by sending out as part of his search party those that he finds whose blindness he has healed. In our story, Jesus sees our blind man, starts at the beginning with mud, and then sends him. He sends him. Jesus sends each, sends all of us as his ministers of grace into the world by using what we assume to be our deepest shame as a means for bringing light to the world. As we see in our story, there are no guarantees. When we are asked, how has it happened that your life is so different, that you are wise beyond your years, that your marriage has renewed, that you have sustained your recovery from addiction, that you are healing from your sexual abuse, that you have forgiven your white oppressors, that you have humbly sought reconciliation with your African-American, Asian, and Hispanic brothers and sisters, and you tell them, the man they call Jesus began at the beginning and is continuing to heal me. You may be met with curiosity and desire or fear and condemnation, but do not be afraid, nor nor worry if the light initially hurts your eyes. For even as the light has seen you, is healing you, and sending you out, he is also always faithful to find you, to remind you that you are his, that you are irreplaceable, that you are irreplicable, and that you are chosen to co-create with him the new life, God's future life, here and now, as we practice for the heaven that is surely coming. Amen.